good to see everybody. If you would, turn in your worship guide to the sermon scripture for today, uh, which is Psalm number 9, or if you like to use your own Bible, same text, Psalm 9. Um, we'll read this together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in to looking at it closely. Psalm 9, to the choir master, according to the Muth Laban, a psalm of David. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and they perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on a throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, and the memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever, and he has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, has not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praise to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. And he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. And the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Let man not prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put in them fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, hallowed be your name. Lord, I pray that you would open up your word to us. I pray that you would help us to see what it is that you want to show us. Help us to hear what it is that you want to speak to us. Thank you that you speak in your word. Thank you that we can trust what you have to say. Lord, I pray that in this time you would help us to see the glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to see the confidence and the empowerment that you give us to face the brokenness in the world. 
Lord, help us to understand just how incredible you are making yourself available to us in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, we've been in the Psalms a few weeks, and if you're, if you're visiting with us, this is something that we do every so often. We uh, have a custom of, you know, going through a particular preaching, teaching series, a book of the Bible, or a section of a book of the Bible, and we'll do that for a few weeks, and then when it's over, we go to the Psalms for a while. And then we'll go, and we'll start another book of the Bible, another section, and go through, and then when that's over, we go back to the Psalms and pick up where we left off. And that's what we're doing now. And we've been a few weeks uh, into this little section of Psalms, or the Psalter, which is the fancy word for the book of Psalms in the Bible. So we did, in this little run in the Psalter, we've done Psalm 6. Uh, then we skipped ahead because I got sick and Scott did Psalm 8. And then we went back and did 7, and now we're doing 9. So 6, 7, 8, 9. Uh, next week, obviously, we'll do Psalm 10. Um, but this section, uh, depending on who you ask, it's 7 through 10 or 6 through 10, uh, that all in the Psalter are designed to complement each other. So when you read through the book of Psalms, starting with number 1, going all the way to 150, um, when you're in this spot, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, a lot of the themes that you read are might seem a little repetitive. So in this week's psalm, we have themes like like uh, trouble in the world, dealing with and wrestling with enemies, being under attack, uh, themes like God's uh, rule and reign and his judgment. And if, at just first glance, it could seem like we're sort of caught in a repetitive loop that we're not really learning anything new in these in this particular that we've been here before but when you look closer we see that in each of these psalms in this section David is showing us a different aspect of what it means uh or ha- better yet how to live as a person of faith as the people of God in a world that is very much broken so for example Psalm 6 was sort of a general uh, meditation on what it means to face brokenness in the world as um, a person with faith in God. It was sort of a general overview. Psalm 7 was very specific, very practical. What do you do when you've been falsely accused? In a broken world, false accusations are everywhere, and some of our biggest problems are based on them. It's very specific. What do you do when you're falsely accused? Psalm 8 goes super meta. What does it mean to be a human being even when the world is broken? What does it mean to be human? Now Psalm 9 sort of bounces back to practicality. Uh, Psalm 9 is uh, a bit of a how-to psalm. The question, if we had to frame a question that Psalm 9 answers or exists as the answer to. If we're going to do Bible study Jeopardy uh, and try to figure out the question. Psalm 9 is the answer, but the question would be uh, a how-to question. How to pray when you are in crisis? How to? What does it mean? How do you do it? Uh, when everything stinks, 
How am I supposed to pray in that moment? Now that's really important uh, because these are, I don't know about you, but at least in my life, sometimes, well actually a whole lot of the time, it's hard to pray. I know praying is just talking to God. I know you're just like, hey, just close your eyes. Just talk to him like he's right here because he is. You know, that's what we do when we pray. Yeah, I get that. But I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but especially when things are hard, especially when I'm feeling down because of just the weight of the world or maybe like like maybe you do what I did this morning and I, I get up and I drink coffee, I do the wordle, and then I look at the news. And I look at the news and my heart sinks because we had another mass shooting. Uh, uh, motivated, as far as we could tell, by, well, very clearly motivated by racism. And my heart sinks. This, uh, uh, it's, this kind of thing is happening all the time. And it, Lord, what? And then after that, I usually spend some time reading my Bible and praying. And this morning, I, th- I, I, I didn't know what to pray. I was feeling down. Maybe you're like that. Sometimes the hardest, most difficult prayer times are when we feel the weight of the brokenness of the world. So Psalm 9 appropriately lands on today. How do you do it? How to? Now, just let me give you, uh, let me explain how we know it's a how to. It's not just because of the content. Uh, it's also because of the form. So if you look at the very beginning, it, Psalm, some Psalms have a title. This one says, to the choir master. We've seen this one, we've seen this before, this little phrase, to the choir master. When we see that in the Psalms, that means that it was composed specifically as a song for congregational worship. We've talked about this also. All Psalms are appropriate for singing together. Uh, anything in the Bible is appropriate for singing together. But some psalms, 55 of them, are labeled to the choir master. They were specifically written with the intent of being congregational sing-together songs. That says something. Congregational sing-together songs we sing over and over and over again. There's, there's, uh, it, you start to memorize it. You start to internalize it. You do it with other people. It's communal. That, that's different than what we had last week, which is more like a private prayer meditation. So we read it differently. Here's the second thing. Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 together, if you read it in Hebrew, the first uh, letter of each first word in each section, each like little phrase, uh, makes the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. So Psalm 9 and 10 together form an acrostic. If it was in English, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but it's in Hebrew, and I'm not very good at the Hebrew alphabet, so I'll spare you. Uh, but that tells us something. That tells us that this was not just supposed to be read through and meditated on, but it was supposed to be memorized. It was supposed to be internalized. So here we have a psalm that is specifically designed as a teaching psalm. And then in the content, we have a very clear prayer from King David having to do with being delivered from enemies, God addressing injustice, very real tangible problems. But David never gets too specific. He doesn't say, Lord, deliver me from the Philistines who are attacking us right now. No, he says things like enemies. He talks about the poor. These are... Timeless problems that we have in the world. So what we have is this teaching psalm. Now let's 
what is, why am I spending so much time with this? Well, the reason is, is because it helps us to see that this isn't just some nice poetic part of scripture to, you know, sort of spend time with. No, this is, this is instructional. There's practical steps. Do this, do this, do this kind of stuff in this psalm. So let, let me show you. Let's get into it. The big question David's answering is, how do I pray in a crisis? When things are going wrong, when I'm feeling down, how specifically am I supposed to pray as a person who knows God and loves God as a Christian or in David's case as a Jew? How do I do it? And the big answer, we need to summarize Psalm 9's answer, is this. I'll give it to you up front, just in case, you know, uh, I start rambling. That way we don't miss it. The answer, the question, how do I pray in a crisis? The answer is, pray your theology. And that happens to be the title of the sermon in your worship guide, in case you forget. So if you're driving home today and somebody says, what was the big idea of the sermon? The answer is, pray your theology. How do I pray in a crisis? Pray your theology. Okay, Charlie, what does that mean? Well, theology is an academic term. Uh, Theo means God. Ology means studying it, right? So theology, the study of God. Uh, Our theology is what we believe about two things. Who God is and what God does. Now, every single person, whether you're a Christian or or you're not a Christian or you believe in God or you don't believe in God, every single person has a theology. Every single person has something that they believe about. Even if your theology is, I don't believe God exists and therefore he doesn't do anything. Who is God? What does he do? Every person has a theology. Who is your God? Who is the God you believe in? And what do you believe that that God does? And that's what David is showing us here is that those two things, who is God, what does God do, inform and direct the kind of prayers that we are to pray in times of crisis. Look at the text. Look at how David starts out with who is God uh, and and then goes on to talk about what God does. Let's start at the beginning. He says, I'll give thanks to the Lord. That's Lord with all caps. In our English Bible, when it's L-O-R-D, all caps, that means that in the Hebrew, what we have is Yahweh, God's personal covenantal name. God gets called lots of things in the Bible, but in Exodus 3, when Moses says, who should I tell the people, who, who, who sent me, what is your name? Uh, God identified himself as Yahweh, which means I am who I am. So David's not just talking about a vague idea of God here. He's talking about the personal God, the God of Israel, the God of Moses. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I'll recount your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad. I'll exult in you, and I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. He's already named God as Yahweh. He says, I'll sing praise to God's name, O Most High. O Most High, do you remember where that comes from? That comes from, we also hit this last week, Genesis 14. Remember when the patriarch Abraham won like the world war, but then had nothing to show for it? 
And then he meets the mysterious priest king Melchizedek who blessed him. Remember what Melchizedek called God? He called him El Elyon, God Most High. God above all, the biggest and the awesomest. So David starts the prayer with, I give thanks to Yahweh, the God of Moses, with my whole heart. And he starts the prayer with, I sing praise to your name, O Most High, O El Elyon, the God of Abraham. David is doing something specific here. He's starting his prayer with this, you know, I'll give praise and I'll give thanks. And he's naming God as specifically the God of Abraham and the God of Moses. He is, uh, like, like, this is not just a vague idea of God. This is becoming personal theology. The God of Israel. The God of our forefathers. The God who split the Red Sea. The God who calls us out of Egypt. This is who God is. David starts with that. So, oh, and then he goes on. And he, throughout the psalm, especially through the first 12 verses, he builds on that God of Abraham, God of Moses thing by naming specific things about God's identity. He, he talks about his enemies. My enemies turn back, they stumble, and they perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on a throne giving righteous judgment. Throne and judgment. Kingliness and judgeliness. He's God of Abraham, God of Moses, the God who sits on a throne, the King God, and the God who makes judgments, the Judge God. If you've been with us the last few weeks in the last several Psalms, the theme of God being a king and God being a judge has come up over and over again. And then David meditates on these things. He says, you've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You've blotted out their name forever. This is, this is a, a kingly God who goes to war for his people. He says, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. The cities you rooted out, the memory of them has perished. This is an image of God going out to clear the promised land uh, from the pagan peoples. This is the leader of the people. This is a, a warrior king, if you will. He says the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established a throne. King, he's established a throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness, the peoples with equity. Judge. Are you getting the picture? David, it's like David is starting out with his prayer, Oh, okay, oh dear Lord, okay, who do I believe that God is? Who am I speaking to? Am I speaking to the God of Abraham? I'm speaking to the God of Moses. And this is the, uh, the King God, the God who leads us in triumphal procession. This is the God who calls us together, who gave us the land, the king. And this is the judge God. This is the God that always does what's right. This is the God that calls out evil. He calls out oppression. What David is doing is he is rehearsing his theology right at the beginning of the prayer. Pray your theology means... Pray what you believe is true about God. Name Him. Now, we don't 
very often naturally do this. I don't naturally do this when I pray. I tend to do this. Uh, Dear Lord, here's what I need from you. <laughs> here's what I need from you right now. Or I'll start with, Dear Lord, I'm uh, I'm not doing well. I'm having a panic, panic attack. I feel bad. Uh, now here's what I need from you. I start with me. David is showing, don't start with me. Start with him. Name him. Who do you believe that he is? Now, this is important. God, it's not that God needs to know who, it's not that he needs to be reminded. He's completely self-aware. But it's that we need to be reminded. We need, our brains need to hear our mouths say out loud what we believe. Because it's so easy for us to forget. And when the challenges in life, when the darkness of the newsfeed, when the frustration of Monday morning, when the, uh, uh, when the, the difficult days of parenting, when the difficult days of being a kid with your parents, when these things are weighing heavy on us, we need not just to know, but we need to say, we need to hear, we need to be reminded, we need to have active belief in who God is. Gospel Christianity is not passive belief. It's not something that we just get initiated into and then we just go through life. No, it's active belief. God calls us to always be taking a hold of what we believe to be true about Him. God cares not just about His identity, but He cares about the way we see Him. Because He wants us to know and be reminded and to really rest in the fact that His kingship is, and the way that He judges is good. I know that I so often find myself having a hard time, sure, He's powerful, but is He really good? Well, I know He is up here. I need to say that out loud. I need to take a hold of it. Those of you who are maybe married in our marriage relationships, it's not enough just to know that you love your spouse, your partner. No, we need to say it out loud. They don't just need to hear you say it. You need to hear you say it. So how do we pray in a crisis? Prayer theology, that means say out loud, who do you believe that God is? What, what do you know from Scripture? What do you know from your experience? What do you see about him to be true in the world? Say it. Name him. Next. How do we pray our theology? How do we pray in a crisis? Pray your theology. Name him. Say what you believe to be true about God. And second is this. Praise him. Name him. Praise him. This one it's so obvious in the text, it's sort of easy to miss because the Psalms are filled with, pra- with praises. But consider this. David starts off with, I'll give thanks to the Lord, Yahweh, God of Moses, with my whole heart. I'll recount your wonderful deeds. I will be glad. I will exult. You know what exult means with a U? Not exult, exult. Exult means you're like doing backflips of joy on the inside. I will exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. He goes on to talk about God's kingliness. God God is a judge. And 
then he goes, he says, sing praises to the Lord. His belief is matched with praise. Now, this is important. Uh, the kind of well, gospel Christianity, what we're doing here, is not just in your brain only kind of faith. It's faith that needs to get down and be rooted in your heart. But it's not just in your brain and in your heart faith. It's in your brain, in your heart, and then overflowing out of your mouth faith. God wants, uh, let me put it this way. God doesn't just want your intellectual assent or allegiance. Uh, he, he, he wants your passions. He wants your affection. And in times of crisis, it can be easy for us to forget that. I know that the way that I'm wired, when life gets hard, I tend to shut my, try to shut my feelings down. But we see here in Scripture that when life gets hard, feelings need to get turned on. We turn up the volume on what's going on in our heart. What God offers us in the gospel is not just a mental a reorienting of the way we see the world. The gospel is not a world view. What God offers us in the gospel is not just a reorienting of our lives. The gospel isn't a lifestyle. What God offers us in the gospel is a reorienting of our whole being and seeing the world around us as renewed and glorious because of God. It's don't just name him, praise him. He wants you to participate in his glory. You know, you can go back and you can read stories of uh, people who have died for their faith in Jesus, of martyrs in the early church or even in today's church. And if you go and you do a study of these things, uh, it's you might notice how many people went to the flames or went to the noose or to the Colosseum to be torn apart by wild animals or all of these all these people who are going to their death are going with songs of praises on their lips and smiles on their faces. Over and over and over again, we read stories and Christian history about that. We also read stories about people who go through incredible seasons of pain in their life. But we see in them a relentless sort of joy, even in their grief. Like Job, after he lost everything, and he says, though he slays me, I will continue to praise him. I know that in my own life, I, I knew that story of Job saying that he's going to praise God even if God slays him. But that lived as sort of an idea in my mind until I saw it actually happen. This one's a little personal for me. Several years ago, my family, uh, we lost a, a niece and a granddaughter and a daughter in my family. Her name was Eloise, and she died when she was nine. She lived in Cabot, Arkansas with her mom, my sister, Sarah, and her dad, my brother-in-law, Clayton. And Eloise was born with without a left side of her heart. So she had half a heart, and it was the weaker side. But she lived nine years, multiple open-heart surgeries. It was very difficult, but over and over again, we communities of people would pray for Eloise, and she'd pull through in a hard time. And there were times when it was... We, you know, maybe God's healing her 
maybe she's getting better. She was such a great kid, filled with joy, contagious laughter, loved to sing loud and off key, hilarious, just a wonderful kid. But when Eloise died, it hit our family like a wrecking ball. And on the day that she died, I remember we were all waiting out in the lobby of the hospital, and Sarah and Clayton, Eloise's parents, were in the back room. And we were waiting. It was the last moments. We were waiting for what would happen. I remember standing in the hallway in between back where they were in the waiting room because I was anxious. And then out came Sarah and Clayton from behind the doors. And they were laughing. And I thought, what is going on? And I said, so what's going on? And Sarah with, folks, this is a strange moment, with a huge smile says, she's with Jesus. And I said, she's gone? I'm angry with grief. And she says, no, she's with Jesus. And I watched as they cried and laughed. And I thought, they must be in denial. But then later that day, I watched Sarah, my sister, lay on the couch in her living room with my family around, screaming in grief from her guts, crying out, Lord, why did you take her? Where's my daughter? And none of us knew what to say. We're standing there watching. And then Sarah says this. Though he slay me, I will praise him. (laughs) Where do people, and even today, uh, uh, grieving the loss of their daughter, every time they talk about Eloise, they start talking about Jesus. Where does that kind of resilience, are are they crazy? Are they living in denial? Or do they know something about how God's identity impacts our reality that draws out our praises? Have they experienced that in a unique way because of the crisis that they endured while holding on to what God had revealed about himself? Maybe it's the former, but I'm convinced it's the latter because we see too many things like that in the history of God's people. So, in a crisis, name him, praise him. And then last, claim him. It rhymes, it's cheesy, but you're going to remember it. Name him, praise him. here's, Here's what I mean. Starting with verse 12, halfway through to the end of the psalm, David takes everything that he has said to be true about God thus far and claims it personally for himself and for the kingdom that he rules, Israel. He applies it to his life. He's talked about God as a judge, God as a king, God as a, even as a savior, saving the oppressed as a king judge. And then he changes. He says, be gracious to me. Now he starts talking about himself. See my affliction from those who hate me. You lift me up from the gates of death that I might recount your praises, that I might recount your praises from the gates of the daughter of Zion, that I might rejoice in your salvation. And then he talks about the nations that, you know, David was a king and he's writing here as the king of Israel. The nations were uh, uh, against him and against God. And he was, especially the first part of his career, seems to always be at war defending God's people. But now he talks about the nations 
are sinking in a pit that they have made. He goes on to talk about how God is executing judgment, but this is not no longer theological theory. This is what he has experienced in his life. He's applying it. Folks, this is... This is the whole thing about um, God becoming a man in Jesus Christ. Uh, we could have known, but with, if, if God never became a human being, if Jesus never came, uh, then he could still tell us that he's the king. He could tell us that he's the judge. He could tell us what he cares about. He, he could command us to praise him. But we couldn't lay a hold of any of those truths for ourselves. It wouldn't be our truths because caught up and locked in our own inward-facing, rebelling against God sin, we wouldn't be the people that he's fighting for. We would be the ones he's fighting against because in our natural state, since the rebellion began in the Garden of Eden with Adam. We're made in God's image as beautiful, wonderful people that deserve to be known and loved and valued. But we ourselves, every single person, has not lived up to that image, but has thrown it out and rebelled and declared independence from God. My, not who is God, but who am I? Who am I going to be? Not what does God do, but what do I want to do with my life? I'm going to be my own God, my own king, my own judge. And we cut ourselves off from who God is. But God did become a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He did become a son of David. He did become one of Moses' people. He did become a son of Abraham. So that the truths that we, the things that are true about God and the life of glorious praise that he calls us into become realities that we can claim for ourselves. God became a human being to enter into human experience. The divine entered into human experience so that humans could enter into life with the divine. So that we can experience God for ourselves. This means that Christian theology is not just something we find in a book. It's not just something we see in nature. It's not just something we talk about. It's something that belongs to us. Who God is and what he has done is ours. Not just ours only, but also offered to the whole world. This is why God came to be one of us. So in a crisis, when life is hard, when there's no hope, when we don't know what to do, when we're at the end of a rope, when we're in the middle of a panic attack, when everything stinks, who is he to you? Tell him that. Cry it out. Praise him, even if it's from a gut of pain, because he belongs to you in Christ. Claim him. 
I love the way this psalm ends. It says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. The nations be judged before you. Put in them fear, O Lord, that the nations know, but they are but men. (laughs) What's the difference between David and these people who are attacking him that God is judging? They're all just people, right? Well, the, the enemies in this are just merely men. But David is a man who knows God. That's the difference. So the difference between life and death, the difference between flourishing and everything going to the pits, the difference between being defended by God or facing him as a terrible enemy, all comes down to whether you know him, which means whether you know him as he revealed himself, as the king, as the judge, as the savior, as Jesus Christ. So how do we pray in a crisis? Pray your theology. Name him, praise him, claim him. And all of those things point to our man, God in the flesh, the one who entered the crisis and rose victorious from the grave for you. Jesus Christ. So do you know him? Let's pray.